I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 9. This morning we'll study verses 30 through 37. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. This section of scripture is just past the midway point in the record of the Gospel of Mark. And within it, we have marked at the beginning of chapter 9 a shift in emphasis. Up until this point, there's been an emphasis on the public working of Christ and on the world asking the question about Jesus' own identity. And here in the second part of the gospel, we have a focus specifically on the cross, the coming suffering of Jesus Christ, and then also a ministry emphasis of Jesus on the preparation of his 12 disciples for the sake of their ministry. You see, they're going to go through a season of immense fear, immense grief, and then in the resurrection, immense joy that will set them on the course for ministry that will fully and truly begin on the day of Pentecost. And so as we come again to chapter 9, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word in verses 30 through 37. This is God's word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have heard the words of the evangelist. O Lord, as he recounted to us faithfully the ministry of Christ to his disciples. O Lord, our Savior told them clearly what would come. O Lord, that he would die at the hands of wicked men and that he would be resurrected. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to believe the truth of that wonderful gospel statement. Lord, you would be here with us as we come to your word, O Lord, that we would receive it with joy and gladness and be built up in it. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
To live for Jesus, you first have to know who Jesus is. After all, what a disciple is in simplest terms is simply becoming like one's own teacher. And to be a disciple of Jesus, to be his follower, means that we become like him. We have to know who he really is. And not just simply who we would want him to be or how we would be pleased for him to lead us, but rather who he reveals himself to be in the Holy Scripture. You see, friends, if we have wrong views of Christ, it will inevitably lead to a wrong-headed Christianity. And in our passage this morning, the disciples of Jesus have at least a truncated or a half-false or an incomplete view of who Jesus is. And so it leads them to a self-centered, prideful understanding and expectation of what their Christian life will be with him. And so this morning as we come to our passage of scripture, I want us to ask two simple questions. Two simple questions. Firstly, in verses 30 through 32, who is he? Who is he? And then in verses 33 through 37, who are we? Who are we? As we read in verse 30, Jesus and his disciples went from that great site, you know, the place where the Mount of Transfiguration was, where he and his disciples had descended the mountain to find the rest of the twelve there attempting to call a demon out from a boy. They left that site where Jesus did a work for this child who had been overwhelmed and for the sake of the father who had seen his child suffer so horribly over years and years, possibly even more than a decade. They've left that. They're on the road now. And what Mark wants us to see is that this is a portion of of Jesus' ministry that is specifically focused on his disciples. In fact, what we're told in verse 30 is that whenever they left and passed through Galilee, that particularly Jesus did not want anyone to know. He didn't want a great crowd. And there was a reason for that. Mark tells us in verse 31 that the reason for his not wanting to draw the attention of crowds was because he was teaching his disciples You see, this is for us a peek sort of into the private interaction of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the 12 men with whom he was the very closest. This is for us hearing the private teaching ministry of a shepherd with his most familiar sheep. And what we have in verse 31 is a summary of sorts. We have Jesus' teaching being put into basically one significantly weighty theological and gospel phrase. Jesus was saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. 
You see, as Jesus is teaching them, it's not just in general. He has a goal. There is a focus. And there's a particular reason why he's only focusing on these men. He's preparing them. This is the seminary of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has ordained them for ministry. He has set them on the way. And up until this point, he has been displaying himself in full fashion to them. Think of all the miracles they've seen him do. Think of all the kindness they've witnessed at the hand and the ministry of the Lord. It's been tremendous. It's been an immense work. It's been a season upon seasons that Jesus has been doing this. But here he's preparing them. He's preparing them for what is coming. He's preparing them for his persecution, for his suffering and his humiliation, for his death and his resurrection. And friends, I think ultimately we can say that he's preparing them for their own future ministries and their own future suffering and their own future humiliation and their own future death in the hope of their own future resurrection. He's preparing them, strengthening them for the work. And you might ask, well, why is he giving them this sort of teaching? Well, it's because it's a sure thing. This is what's coming. And it's a hard future. It's a hard and difficult road that the Lord Jesus is on. It's the road of suffering and it is the road of our redemption And he knows very surely that the heat of persecution will be so hot that for some men it would simply burn them up. That they wouldn't be able to withstand it. And so here prophetically Jesus is speaking with absolute terms to tell them what's coming so that when it comes they will know that it is no accident but it is the design and the plan of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might stand firm in faith in the hour of his persecution and death whenever they're left alone for three days. He wants to strengthen them. Now, what Jesus said, let me repeat it to you. He says simply, the Son of Man, if we're to translate it literally, is delivered. It's a present passive indicative For those of you who are grammar students, the Son of Man is delivered or is betrayed, some translations might say, into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and after three days he will rise, presumably, again. And so the word that Jesus is teaching is simple it's of his suffering, it's of the hardship of what's coming, and it's of the hope of his resurrection. But verse 32 tells us, very simply, they did not understand the saying. And it also tells us that they were afraid to ask him for further clarity. I don't know about you, but whenever I read this, his language is incredibly clear. This isn't one of the obscure verses of the Bible, especially not for the Christian. It's simple to understand that he's saying that the Son of Man is going to be persecuted and then hang on a cross. We know that. We stand 
so many years removed and we look back on it as true history and frankly as the hope of the whole of the Christian religion. It seems simple. And the words that he uses are very definite. There's no question here. There's no obscurity. There's no lack of clarity. And you see, as we come to the passage, I think that it's a right thing to understand because of what Mark tells us, that it's not simply that they couldn't understand the message that Jesus was communicating, but rather they didn't understand Jesus himself. It's not that they couldn't understand that whenever Jesus says that he's going to be given to men, and that he's going to die, that it means he's going to be given to men, and that he's going to die. It's also not that they didn't understand that he was saying that once he dies, he's going to come back to life. It's plain. But it's the question of how it is that the Son of Man will do these things. You see, the disciples saw that Jesus was Messiah. They understood that and they clung to it. We've already had the great profession of Peter, that wonderful and glorious statement of faith. But you see, the disciples understand the scriptures. They were raised up to know it and they know Daniel chapter 7. They know the language of the Son of Man. That he is the one who will come after the ancient of days comes and that into his hands will be given dominion and honor and glory and that his kingdom will remain forever and will never be destroyed. They know this. They know that that's who the Son of Man is. But let me just simply put this into some context so you can understand why the disciples struggled to understand who Jesus was in the midst of what he says. It's simply this. That the Son of Man who is given dominion and honor and glory and whose kingdom shall have no end is being said by Jesus to be betrayed and to be killed and then to rise again. The two things don't compute in the mind and in the heart of the disciples. You see, whenever Jesus speaks of himself, he identifies as the Son of Man who is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The one who will be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. They couldn't understand it. How can he be the reigning son of man and also at one and the same time the suffering savior? Victorious, yet slain upon a cursed tree. How can these things fit together? You see, they didn't understand this message could be true because how could those two things stand in tension with one another? But they are true, friends. And the thing that we understand at the great distance that we have being Christians and having inherited the whole of the scriptures is that that was the path to the reign and the rule and the establishment of the kingdom of the Son of Man. He would be poured out upon the cross and it would be as it were his coronation that as he rises in new life it would be the beginning of his reign that will last forever and ever and ever. But the disciples simply didn't understand how these two things could be. Now he could be reigning and suffering unto death. And as we come to the passage, one of the things that I think is so heartrending and something that ought to grip you, something that ought to gather your attention this morning is that these men were very, very, very close to Jesus. 
They had received his teaching directly. They could have picked Jesus out of a lineup. They knew if he had a funny laugh or a normal laugh. They knew the way he walked. They knew the favorite food that he had. They knew if Jesus gave really firm handshakes or really soft ones. They knew all these things about him. They knew him. They were close to him. They knew if he rose up early or went to bed late. And even with their nearness to Jesus, they still failed to understand his teaching and to have only a partial view of his identity and all of his victory, all of his glory, all of his might, all of his honor. But they didn't perceive him as the suffering savior of sinners. How frightening is that for me and you? How many of you in the church this morning have been raised in the congregation, whether it's here or in others, have once a week, every single week, as long as you can remember in your life, been in a church to hear the word opened and preached? And how many of you have daily times of meditation upon Jesus Christ? How many of you have taken formal study? How many of you have been faithful in things like men's Bible study, ladies' Bible study in times of prayer? How close have you been? And many of you might say, I've been very, very close to him my whole life. Well, this is a simple call for us to examine our hearts and simply ask the question, do we know him as he is? The son of man who is said to be the suffering savior. Do we know him in the full of his identity? Because friends, I'm afraid that very often, whether it's in a simple season or over the course of our Christian life, we can only think of Christ in part and we can mistake him in full. We can think of Christ because he speaks regarding moral and ethical issues in the Bible. We can think on Christ and have our religion being defined with political weight because of the ministry that he did and its political implications. We can think on Christ and his teaching regarding social things and the care for the sick and the poor and the mercy that is to be poured out from the church as those who are given the mercy and grace of his cross. And we can also think of Christ as simply the victorious king who is here to give you higher life and to conquer all of sin and Satan in your life and to make you a victorious Christian. And all of those things are true. Jesus speaks moral and ethical truth. Jesus does teach things that have real and political meaning and the Lord definitely has a heart for the social ills of the world at large and for the injustices that men, women, and children experience. And it is true that in Christ there is freedom and that Christ is the victor over hell, sin, and Satan. And there is for us freedom and hope in him. But you have to see the whole Christ. Don't miss him as the servant of the souls of sinners who himself was poured out even unto death. Don't miss it. That he was given over and trusted by the Father in heaven into the hands of wicked men. That he might be hung upon a tree after his back was shredded and his brow was pierced. 
His hands and feet nailed to the cross. Don't miss Him in the whole of who He is as the Messiah. It is of utmost importance because if we will live after Him, we have to know who He is. We have to live in the grip of the whole of His Messiahship. The King reigning. The Savior slain. The whole of the hope of the kingdom of God that ought to drive us to our knees to know that we are a people free and that we will inherit a free kingdom and to share the gospel of the truth of free grace so that men, women, and children might be reconciled to God. It's of immense importance. And I hope you'll examine your own heart this morning. That was who is Christ or who is he? Secondly, in verses 33 through 37, the narrative changes, though it's completely connected. This is a continual event. Your Bible might have them separated by headings, but it's one event as it were. Verse 33, who are we? It gives us the account of the disciples' shameful conversation. It tells us that as they came to Capernaum, and whenever they were in the house... That Jesus asked them, what were you discussing on the way? You see, it seems that as the picture is being painted by Mark, you have these disciples who perceived what Jesus was saying, who were so struck by it that they were struck afraid and didn't even want to ask, oh Lord, please unpack for us what it does exactly mean that you're going to be given over as the Son of Man, that you're going to suffer unto death. You see, it was hard news and they didn't even want to know. I wonder if you can relate to this. Have you ever suspected that there was bad news, but you just didn't really want to hear it? You just kind of in denial said, I'm not going to ask the question. I don't really want to know how bad it actually is. That's something of it, I think. And as they're coming and walking along with Jesus, as he's given himself in teaching for the sake of their own hearts and for their lives... Sinclair Ferguson describes their being shaken and their distance from him so that Christ wasn't part of this conversation. He says this, It was a time when none of the disciples felt able to walk alongside him. You see that? Hard teaching. They're trailing behind. They're not at his side and Christ is out front. And whenever I think of this, you know, I relate to this. In great fashion. In my own illustration, I used uh, an illustration about small boys. I think men do this as well. But here's the story. Here's the way you can understand what's going on in the picture that the scriptures are giving us in the word. It's like small boys having a conversation, or let me just say an argument, over a stone-tossing competition. Think of it that way. And the first boy, he says... I am better than you at throwing stones. Another boy stands up and he says, I can throw a stone all the way past that tree. And then another boy gets up and he says, I'm better than you. I can throw a stone past that tree, past that stream, all the way to the other side. And then the smallest of the crowd gets up and he says, Guys, I am the best stone thrower that has ever existed. I can throw a stone beyond the tree, across the stream. I can throw it so hard that the stone will circumnavigate the globe and come right back and land in front of us. All the way around the world. 
And you have this chest puffing and this competition of manliness. This silly boy conversation of childish and foolish arrogance. And there's something of that that's going on. Except in this case, it's grown men and they're having a theological dispute. I know more theology than you. I'm more reformed than you. I'm, I'm more sound in the kingdom. My life of holiness is better than yours. Who will be the first? Well, I think it's going to be me. I think it's going to be me, but the other says, no, it's me. And the sons of thunder, indignant, no, it will be me. I'll be first in the kingdom of heaven. So much that we even have the other account of the sons of thunder, James and John, asking Jesus, can we sit at your right hand? It's a silly conversation, a fool's argument. But at some distance from Jesus, and how do we know that? It's because... The scripture tells us that whenever they came into the house where they would stay for the evening, Jesus asked them about their heated conversation. And the response of the men was silence. It's like each one of them had the thought come into their mind. He wasn't supposed to know that we were having an argument. I thought we were relatively quiet. They were ashamed of what they had been debating about. And so the scripture tells us that Jesus began to teach the men. He addressed the topic of their argument. Who would be the first in the kingdom? And Jesus says very simply, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. Very simple. And further than that, verse 36 tells us that he took a child, a little boy, and he put him in the midst of them. And he took the boy up into his arms and he said to them, Whoever receives one such child receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. And you see, this is Jesus' phrase to the same men who in Matthew nineteen thirteen rebuked desperate parents for bringing little children to Jesus for help. And for blessing. Do you remember that? And Jesus is speaking to them and he's teaching them and he is confronting something that's deep in their souls. Ultimately that they themselves are not being like him. They're not being like him. Whenever Jesus puts the child in their midst, he wants them to learn. He wants them to learn that God is most honored by humble service. Service that cares not only for the great, the wealthy, the important, and the well thought of, but by the little, by the servants, and by the slaves. Even the little children. The ones who seem insignificant. That if a person will be first in his kingdom, they will serve not only the great, but also the small. And they themselves will be the servant of them. Pouring themselves out for the little ones even. You see, it's a picture that Jesus is intending for them to understand that if they will serve him, if they have any honor in his kingdom, that ultimately they're going to be like him. What do you see of Jesus in the gospel accounts? You see Jesus serving the very least, don't you? You see Jesus on numerous occasions healing children, healing beggars, resurrecting children, 
casting out demons from outcasts who are hated and on the fringes of society. He is a servant to the least of these. Jesus is the servant of sinful men who don't deserve honor, and he himself, the one who alone deserves honor and glory. The Son of Man, even he, serves all of us even unto death. And it's just a simple picture. It's a simple picture of that for the disciples. If you're going to be first in the kingdom, you're going to do the work of humility. You're going to be like me. You're going to suffer and serve the souls of men. You're going to love them enough to become a servant. And that's the way that God will be most honored. We have to ask ourselves a question this morning. Do we know Jesus as he was? And has that had an impact on us? Is it our view that the manner in which we'll be pleased to receive the blessing of God and the honor of God is by doing all of the appropriate works of religion, by showing up and being faithful, by reading and by doing good things, really good things? Or will we be like Christ as he is? Engaged in self-sacrificial work and service and giving of ourselves for the sake of others. Just as Jesus gave of himself even unto death for our sake. I think it's a challenge for us this morning. That as a church we ought to be conformed to his image. To be disciples of the one who has been put forth before us in the Gospels, the Son of Man and the Savior who suffered. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures and their teaching. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give clarity if there remains lack of clarity. That Lord, you would give us understanding. Lord, you would send the Holy Spirit in power give us conviction of sin. That, Lord, you would give us grace and mercy to turn away from our sins and to turn to Jesus. Oh, Lord, that you would give us kindness to examine our own hearts and to think much of Christ and little of ourselves. Oh, Lord, that you would be merciful to us, that we would be like him, that we would be a servant to sinners. Father in heaven, we pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.